So good evening, everyone. Interesting day. I always find it so fascinating after being in silence and then starting to speak again. It's like the personality just reemerges. It's like, oh, yep, there it is again. <laughs> Still there. Still me. <laughs> So just a note of appreciation, I feel so grateful um, to get to have shared this time with you all for your practice, uh, for the Sangha that we've created. So I'm just going to offer some thoughts on taking this practice into our daily lives. We all are going to. Yeah, whether we want to or not, for many years I had this dichotomy of like retreat and then my life. And I thought I could only really do practice if I did a lot of retreat. And then I would just go back to the mess and be kind of neurotic and crazy in my life. So this this is a great topic. I love this topic because we start to see that it's actually not separate. And that here's sort of like the training wheels, but the real practice starts when we leave. Yeah, maybe a little harder, but very important. We're not just doing this here to be able to sit for a long time, right? We're doing this here to be skillful in the world. So I just put together some thoughts. I have some stories. I have four topics or themes I want to touch on. First one is embodiment or trust yourself. Second one is generosity and sila. Third one is wise speech. And the fourth is do nothing or play. So embodiment, trust your own wisdom. You might have noticed this week that we have been emphasizing quite a lot the importance of being in the body. Come back to the body, feel the body sitting, feel the body walking, learning about the sensations, how a thought lands in the body, how an emotion lands in the body. But sometimes our bodies don't feel like safe places to be. I know for me, um, yeah, I felt pretty uncomfortable in my body growing up for a lot of years. Our bodies are commodified and objectified and appropriated in all kinds of ways. Trauma lands in the body. So how do we learn to inhabit this space to feel at home here? This has been the real theme of my practice from the beginning. So I found the Dharma um, as a sophomore in college. I was in a sorority. And I don't know if you guys have heard those stories about where they will line up all the sorority girls in a row and like circle places on their bodies that needed improvement. Um, It didn't exactly happen that way in my sorority, but it was very much the culture there. There were many people with eating disorders and competitions between them. 
Um, and I was on the lightweight crew team too, so we were getting weighed every day. And uh, I remember the stroke for the eight um, person boat. So she was the best rower of all of us. She was like the leader. She was setting the pace, but she was always just a little bit too heavy. So we would weigh in before races and she would put on her sweats and ride her bike or run, um, sweat to sweat off the 0.4 pounds that she needed to sweat off. And one race in particular was a really important race. Um, she was still 0.3 over. And so while she was standing on the scale, everybody was sitting around, you know, we were like, what are we going to do? We have to be able to row. And she handed a pair of scissors to our coach and said, cut my hair. And she had this long hair. And I remember just everybody watching as he like pulled her hair back and just like cut her hair. Um, And it was only 0.1 pounds. Yeah, it didn't work. So she sweat more. But just the pressure that I was feeling, that I was putting on myself, too. I mean, so I was in that culture. And then all this perfectionism, straight-A student, so much. It's like my whole world was about how I looked. So much suffering. And that's what everybody else was in, too. Like, everybody else around me. So I was like, isn't this what it's supposed to be, to be a sophomore in college as a woman? So then I, I read a book by Pema Chodron. And she said radical things. She said radical things, like, I was okay just as I was. All the qualities of your natural mind, peace, openness, relaxation, and clarity, are present in your mind just as it is. You don't have to do anything different. You don't have to shift or change. All you have to do while observing your mind is to recognize the qualities that it already has. That was huge. It was so huge for me, and I felt like it was common sense. I was like, yes, that's true. So I started sitting. And, you know, it's an ongoing, I, you know, vacillate in and out of this relationship I have with my body. Is it okay? Is it safe? No, not sometimes. But sitting, I think, really trains us about making a home here, making a safe place to land, like the Brahma Viharas, divine abiding right here in the heart. We can learn such wonderful and wise things from these bodies. I remember I was sitting a three-month retreat here. I was sitting right kind of over here. And um, it was an afternoon metta session. And I just remember holding my body and feeling all the, um, the pushing. Like, oh, I've pushed so hard. You know, all the meals that I had skipped and all the like running, 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 you know, make, trying to like really make it be different. And I remember just feeling it and I felt it was like this little baby that I was holding. And I, as a mother, I was like, I promise I won't push like that anymore. It's like this vow. 
It's really, it's a touch point for me because I can notice now when I'm, if I'm pushing in that way, still pretty seductive sometimes to want to push in that way. But I remember like, nope, I promised. So when we inhabit our bodies, we learn that we have this inner wisdom. Our bodies tell us what to do. They know. Right? They feel when we're acting through goodness, through wholesome intentions, wholesome thoughts. They also feel when we're not. So we're cultivating this knowing, this ability to see clearly from through the body what to do. An appropriate response. My body's teaching me about compassion. And we learn that this compassion learned from the inside is very different from what our culture tells us to do. Right? We have to run against the grain sometimes to do something different. We keep using this word radical. Often what our culture tells us about ourselves is wrong. So this practice helps us trust our own knowing. So I love this quote about um, what we cultivate as we trust this knowing, right? That the wisdom inside knows that we can't stop the waves. We can't stop all the ups and downs of practice, but we can learn how to surf. So metaphor, right? For equanimity, for moving smoothly through the world. But um, I am learning how to surf. And... It's great. I love it. It's such good Dharma practice. So this winter, um, so my partner and I are moving to Hawaii this winter. We spent a little bit of time there. And we found this great surfing instructor named Scotty, uh, who we were, had the privilege of, of being with several, several weeks in a row. So we would go out. Scotty knew the waves. And he was, he was a good instructor. He was like, do this, do this, and do this. It's very, like, clear, you know, like, this is how you do it. This is the right way. And so several things he also said, like, this is really important to do. So what he said, you catch a wave, and as you're riding it, you ride it all the way up onto the beach. Don't jump off until you can just jump off onto the sand. Because it's, you know, he said, it's dangerous if you don't, da-da-da, just go all the way in. So I'm a good student, so I was like, okay, all the way in, all the way in. So it's, there's so many good metaphors in surfing. It's interesting, right? We're learning to ride the waves, be equanimous, learn the ocean, be with it, and there's a lot of effort. So you have to like listen for the right wave and the, know that it's a good size, and then just right at the right moment, you have to get your body all right on the board, and then you just have to paddle like crazy, and you're like, ah, paddle, 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 and it helps if you scrunch up your face and you try really hard, <laughs> you're like, I'm going to get this wave, if nothing else, you're so determined, and that's like practice. Right? I mean, you guys know you've been working hard this week. It's hard. You have to have that kind of like resolve and that determination sometimes. You just have to really do it. And at the same time, the ocean then catches you. And then it's totally effortless. 
it's like grace happens when you catch that wave right at the time. And it, then it's like clear water. I was telling these guys, sometimes you see turtles underneath the water and the wave is just like carrying you in. So graceful. That's equanimity. That's nature. This practice can feel that smooth sometimes. But I learned. So wave after wave, I was jumping off on the sand and then it was just carnage. Like waves are crashing and the board is a mess and like crashing into my legs. I'm falling off and our, my family was like taking pictures and there's all these things where you're like crashing and burning on the shore. <laughs> and finally I realized like, and I watched other people do it. If you hop off a little earlier, a little bit more early and just hold onto your board, you don't have to worry with the, about the waves all crashing in the sand and the beach and stuff. It's easier. Hop off. So, but it took some time, some training to realize I didn't have to follow his instructions perfectly. That my body actually knew, oh, it's, easy, it's easeful if I jump off earlier. That was a real sort of like, oh, this is mine. Like, I don't have to just do it like Scotty does it. I can make this my own practice. That's the inner wisdom. We have to go out with that. Yeah. And then it's also interesting because sometimes, you know, we're, we're pushers, we're doers. We want to follow things through to the very end and get to that like final, you know, beach when you just jump off. Sometimes it's okay to bail. You know, it's a little bit like we've been talking about when you're in a hindrance attack or a big karmic knot storm and your mind goes, well, maybe it's time to just come back to the breath for a little while. And you let it go. So that's skillful too, you know, not to just push all the way to the end. You can just take a little break, jump off your board, come back to the body. So we're titrating in the practice and in our lives. Sometimes that jumping off or bailing out, that's caring for your heart. The mind says, no, I have to finish this. I have to push through, do this thing. And it's really a, a compassionate. We're cultivating the heart. We're leaving some room for the heart when we pause. So we're learning that sometimes we have to break the rules. We're following our body's wisdom regardless of the peer pressure, all of the momentum around us. We're working with ambiguity. I love this. Today is kind of these discussions. We're talking about social justice, about ethics in daily life, and it's not black and white. It's not just right and wrong. We have all these questions that are in some ways imponderable. How do we work skillfully in a world that's very complicated and pretty tangled? So this practice allows some space for not knowing and then for allowing more creative ways to see. The body doesn't speak in words sometimes. It takes its own time. It takes longer sometimes to have an answer when you're just like, I don't know what to do. I'm just going to sit with it for a minute. But I also find, you know, there's uncertainty. There's kind of the heaviness of the world and its brokenness. And sometimes it can feel hopeless. We're just this little tiny being in the midst of all of this craziness. And I love this teaching on Buddha nature. 
It's also kind of taking refuge in the body, taking refuge in our own goodness. I had a lovely conversation with one of you about, like, how do I choose the right career? And, like, I want to do the right thing. And the good news about Buddha nature or this heart-mind that has the possibility of awakening is that we can't mess it up. We can't mess it up indestructible, adamantine, already perfect. It's our birthright. We all have this. All sentient beings have it. So yeah, we're going to make mistakes. Things are messy. The world is broken. But you can rely on this heart. We have this amazing chitta, this heart-mind, The Buddha said, the mind is by nature radiant. It's shining. It is because of visiting forces that we suffer. Sometimes we say it's luminous or a brightly shining mind. In Pali, it's pabasara chitta. So it's luminous, whether it's clouded over. Chaz was saying, you know, sometimes there are clouds, big storm clouds that roll in, but the sun is still the same. You've probably heard the term bodhicitta. Bodhi is awake. Chitta is mind. So we have this in us. I love this quote by Shabkar. He says, The mind is vivid like a flawless piece of crystal. Intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, and ceaselessly responsive. So that responsive piece. How do we respond? So, I think we stay in the body. And then the next part... Generosity or sila. We have beautiful teachings from the Buddha on how to respond skillfully. Suzuki Roshi says, you're perfect just as you are, and you could use some improvement. (laughs) So there's that. That is that paradox. So we're really learning, like, what is an ethical livelihood? What is a way to live in the world with these values, these ethics that are so important? How do we live a moral life? I love this story. Um, I think a few years ago there was a Vipassana teachers conference here. And so all kinds of different teachers from all over the place talking about different things, breakout groups. And I just heard this story about there's a breakout group on compassion. And there's all these teachers who are talking about um, how to practice meditation, you know, compassion meditation, and how to feel it, all the different sensations, and there's this sort of this talk. And then Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's this wonderful monk um, and also activist, said, yeah, it's really important that we feel compassion, and we have to do something. That's, there's two parts to compassion. Remember, there's like the, I wish for the suffering to be alleviated, and what can I do to help? What can I do? 
So then we have these beautiful teachings on generosity. Peter is so great today, right? This tradition that lives on in very different cultures that's preserved here in this wonderful place. And what is it really to feel generosity in your body? How is it to just really give? I have this sense of like the most inspiring giving is like giving it all. What is really ours anyway? You know, and it doesn't have to, we don't have to rate like giving this is better than giving this or this kind of service is better than that or you can get into all of that, but really just that sense of open-heartedness like, yep, yours for you, for you. So beautiful. It makes suffering easier to bear when we do it for others. You know, when we're sitting on the cushion and wrestling with loneliness or anxiety or anger, whatever it is, and we think, May this practice actually benefit all the beings who are experiencing this right now. It buoys us, gives us some levity, energy to carry on. His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, if you drew a line between yourself and all the other beings, who would win? (laughs) Probably all the other beings, right? Makes so much sense. We just should live for them. Life becomes so happy when we're living for others. So I wanted to share this. I've just been um, learning more about the Center for Effective Altruism, uh, which is founded by this young professor at Oxford. His name is Will McCaskill. He looks like really young. I just was looking at pictures of him, but he's so amazing. He's founded this whole movement that's effective altruism is like based on science and analysis and research to see what is actually the most effective way to work, to give money, to serve. It's quite there. I recommend their website. It's quite good. So this is from, this is what he says. Most of us want to make a difference. We see suffering, injustice, and death and are moved to do something about them. But working out what that something is, let alone actually doing it, is a difficult problem. Which cause should you support if you really want to make a difference? What career choices will help you make a significant contribution? Which charities will use your donation effectively? If you don't choose well, you risk wasting your time and money. But if you choose wisely, you have a tremendous chance to improve the world. Effective altruism is the use of high-quality evidence and careful reasoning to work out how to help others as much as possible. Its purpose is to help you figure out how you can do the most good. If you're reading this, then you are probably astonishingly wealthy in global terms. For example, if you earn the typical income in the U.S. and donate 10% of your earnings each year to the Against Malaria Foundation, you will probably save dozens of lives in your lifetime. This is such an astonishing fact that it's hard to appreciate. Imagine if one day you see a burning building with a small child inside. You run into the blaze, pick up the child, and carry them to safety. 
you would be a hero or a heroine. It would be one of the most important days of your life. What the evidence shows is that you can do that every one or two years for the rest of your working life. That's really beautiful, isn't it? So interdependence. Maybe it's not so hard to serve. Maybe actually it's unavoidable. We're all part of this, right? And even feeding ourselves and doing this practice and living our lives, if done with intention, perhaps that's serving. Perhaps that's helping. And when we start to turn the lens in this way, Oh, I also, I just wanted to attribute this. Um, I heard about this Center for Effective Altruism in another Dharma talk from my friend Matthew Brensilver. So just to give him the credit there. He's a great teacher. Um, so when we start to turn the lens towards this goodness that we all have, kind of incredible. So I was flew from Oregon to get here the day the retreat started and um, it's really early morning and the airport was super crowded and I was like rushed and stressed about catching my first flight and then that flight we sat on the tarmac for a long time it was actually interesting we started to take off and then the pilot put on the brakes we actually like stopped on the runway and then turned around he said there was some emergency light going off so that was an interesting um, morning to work with my anxiety. Um, so we sat on the tarmac for another hour and then took off. So I thought, okay, I'm going to miss my connection in San Francisco to Boston. And I had all this anxiety building in my body. I was like wrapped up in my story. And the guy next to me was like, hey, do you want a protein bar? <laughs> <laughs> so kind, right? So he gave me breakfast. And then, um, and then we were landing, and I was like, oh, my God, am I going to make it? And I'm not, da, da, da. I was like, you know, when you land and everybody stands up and they're, like, crowded out the aisle, I just noticed myself, like, wanting to push through, like, please let me through. I have this tight connection. It really was, like, within minutes. And so I, like, rush, 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 you know, kind of, like, pushing off the plane. And everybody's like, okay, like, getting, you know, kind of moving through out of the way. And they're like, okay, go, go, hope you make it. And then I'm, like, running, really sprinting through SFO and going down the, you know, the moving, um, like, escalator thing. And people were so nice. They were like, oh, yeah, like, moving out of the way. And they're like, good, hope you make it. Like, so many people were so kind. And I was totally in my own store. I was like, wow, I'm really self-centered right now. And I'm going to go to a meditation retreat and talk about <laughs> compassion. But everyone just simply, like, not even thinking about it. There's natural goodness, you know. And the stewardess on the flight was so nice. She was like, glad you made it, you know. So it's everywhere. All the little acts of kindness. I don't know if you've seen this documentary that recently came out um, on Fred Rogers. I know Rebecca mentioned him. Um, Won't you be my neighbor? Oh, he's such a good person. And I really grew up. I remembered those episodes like in the movie. I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that one. I saw that one. Um, I love this. His meditation advice was if you're feeling despondent about the state of the world or, um, yeah, really in despair, remember the helpers. Right. Consider someone who has really helped you 
And then you can think about all the people out there doing such good work. Such good work. It's nice to meet some of you and just hear like, wow, in this room, (laughs) there's so much amazing work being done. So inspiring, really. Yeah. There's this beautiful poem from the Dhammapada. It's called, Do Many Skillful Things. Just as from a heap of flowers, many garlands can be made, so you, with your mortal life, should do many skillful things. And I think we do. And I think we will. So the third category or topic here is wise speech. This is a really big one. Have you noticed a little bit about speech today? And listening? Yeah. I think, yeah, I mean, all the precepts are hard, but I remember one of my first retreats, a teacher saying, you know, to me, he said, you probably aren't going around killing people, and you probably aren't stealing a lot, and, you know, why sexuality, probably not taking a lot of drugs, but speech, I mean, we are talking all the time. It's a good practice. The Buddha said that we have an axe in our mouth. So axes are tools that build things, right? Really important. But they also have the potential to really harm. So there's four useful questions for wise speech that I like to think about. Is it true? Is it necessary or useful? Is it timely? the right time? And is it kind? So interesting, because some really conservative definitions might say if the answer is no to any of those four questions, don't say it. And it can be really good practice. I love this. Just make it your focus for a day or for a week. One summer, I decided I wasn't going to ever talk about a third party if they weren't in the room. And I talked to really a lot less. (laughs) (laughs) I was really into Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility and all these Jane Austen novels, and I realized all they are is talking about people who aren't in the room. It's all gossip. That's it. (laughs) So that's sort of an extreme example. But really using these questions, testing yourself, watching your motivation, very good practice. So it's funny, all my stories are from airports recently because I'm in them a lot. Um, Yeah, so uh, I was teaching with my partner in Berlin and we had this crazy flight schedule. We were flying from Berlin, this tiny airport in Berlin, to a tiny airport in Mexico. And so we had to get up at like three, drive to the Berlin airport. And then our, our airlines were like airlines you've never heard of, like Eurowings. 
Anybody know that airline company? And then Aerobus in Mexico. And we looked at the reviews online beforehand, and, and my partner was like, oh, no. <laughs> Not good. Like, very bad reviews for Eurowings. Um, <laughs> seats are tight. They don't give you water. Like, all this stuff. So we're waking up early in the morning. We get to the airport like two hours in advance, lots of time, and it's like five in the morning. And there's this huge line, like this crowd of people. And we're thinking, what happened? You know, is this like, why is there all these people out on the, like, the drop-off place even? And so we go walking past all the people, continuing to walk, 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 and we see, oh, this is the check-in line for Eurowings. <laughs> it's like so long. So, and it's freezing outside, and we have clothes on for Mexico, and um, people are obviously unhappy in the line, and so we're just like, all right, well, we have time. We knew it was going to be bad, so here we go. Time to practice. Standing meditation. So, wait, wait, wait. Waited for like an hour, hour and a half, getting tight. We're like almost to the front of the line. We had waited. There are people way behind us. And then just this woman, you're like, you know, waiting in line in the, with the, you know, the way that they do the tape to guide you. Um, so this one, like, airline person lifted the, the rope, and all the people behind us flooded in in front. And we're like, uh, <laughs> we just waited for so long. And then I have to say I wasn't very nice. Um, or compassionate. I just had a little freak out moment. I was like, hey, wait, we've been waiting for so long and we're going to miss our flight. So not my best moment. Um, But we made it. We got on. And um, yeah, by the time then we had a long layover in Cologne. And by that time, both of us were pretty grumpy. And, you know, we could tell. We're like, okay, we're really grumpy. And um, I I was annoyed with Craig with my husband, and I was, yeah, had this whole story running, and usually we're pretty good at communicating, we'll, like, hash it out, you know, and he could tell, he was like, okay, what is it, like, tell me what's going on in your mind, because you're obviously having something, and, um, and I remember I was very mindful, actually, in the moment, I saw my intention, my intention was tell the, to tell the truth, and my intention was, like, to work it out, but it really wasn't kind, what I said. It's actually really not kind what I said to him. And it was, I was mindful. So I saw the ways my words went out, and then I saw them land, and I saw it break something in him. Like I saw his heart, you know, like the, I saw it hurt. And whew, gosh, that's like the axe in your mouth. I really, and then he just said, I'm going to go be alone because I like being by myself. So, wow, I learned that one, right? It was true. It was really what I was feeling in the moment, but it wasn't kind at all. So maybe we don't need to be that honest. (laughs) And it wasn't a good time either because we were both so tired, so tired, right? We'd been awake already for so long. So then we got to learn about forgiveness. And... um, Because especially we got on a flight and it was going to be a 10-hour flight sitting next to each other. (laughs) This tight space. (laughs) Oh, man. He was very graceful. 
I have to say I'm very grateful for his forgiveness. First we got on, he was like, this is going to take some days. And I'm like, oh, no. But no, he was pretty quick. Mm. So my other language story, speech story, um, I have a really dear friend named Law. And they have really taught me about pronouns. Um, Yeah, so for a long time, you know, I was really trying to do the right thing. I was like, I would correct myself, I would make a mistake, and then I would correct myself and be like, oh no, they, you know? And it was, it was to do the right thing, it was like to be good, you know, kind of like use the right pronoun. And I remember the moment when actually my inside dialogue, like monologue, actually said they. And it was the whole, like my whole conception of this person changed. I was like, oh yeah, they're really a they. It's not like I have to make some shift. And then I could see them in a totally different light. Like, this is really who this person is. So profound, that insight. And these, you know, these gender binaries and the ways that we just unconsciously use language inside and outside makes a really big difference. It's sort of like we're creating the world, right, in our perspective. So I'm really, I feel so committed to language and learning about it. And how does it affect other people? Really important. Yeah. So being skillful with our language, with our speech. Okay. Last theme. Do nothing and play. So Dogo Kensei Rinpoche, who is a wonderful Dzogchen master, this is, what, this is his practice instruction. He says, the everyday practice is simply to develop a complete acceptance and openness to all situations and emotions and to all people, experiencing everything totally without mental reservations and blockages so that one never withdraws or centralizes into oneself. This produces a tremendous energy, which is usually locked up in the process of mental evasion and a general running away from experience. So developing a complete acceptance and openness to everyone and everything. (laughs) Kind of a high bar. But I want to argue that by doing nothing, it actually allows us to develop that kind of capacity, that resilience. I want to read a little bit. Craig, my husband, is making an appearance in this talk because he wrote this. Um, So we teach together sometimes, and this is what he said. For most of us, most of the time, we're running on fumes. Or if not fumes then on half a tank of gas, in a car that needs an oil change, and some new tires. We don't give ourselves the rest we need. We really started noticing this about a year into teaching workshops. We'd lie everybody down for a body scan, and half the room would fall asleep. At first, we worried. I mean, we had things to teach, after all. But after a while, we started to celebrate the snoring, Because what we noticed was that meditation went a lot better 
if people just let themselves slumber for a bit. Now we've begun to apply this insight into our own lives. If we fall asleep in meditation, we don't worry about it. When we wake up, we just start meditating again. And at least once a week, we give ourselves plenty of time to just lie around and do nothing. And I'll put a caveat, he's really good at this. I'm still learning. <laughs> don't do this every week, but I'm trying. So it could seem pretty self-indulgent, but it's actually a serious discipline with clear motivation. Want to give it a try? Block out a half a day sometime, a Sunday afternoon or whatever day you might have partially off. Block it out in advance. Send your kids off with their grandparents. Tell your life partner to go bowling. Do whatever might be necessary to have some time alone. Then turn off your cell phone and your laptop and unplug the TV and just do nothing the whole time. Don't go for a 30-mile bike ride. Don't read the news. Don't read a book. Don't meditate. Don't take in any information at all. Don't drive your car. Don't call a friend. And don't work in the garden. Just lie around. When you feel tired, sleep. When you feel restless, jump up and down and make funny noises. Sure. If you feel like it, you can meditate. Might want to do a slow walk. But the discipline is literally to do nothing. The motivation, however, is really important. We're doing this, in fact, to make ourselves more available to others. We want to actually give the mind and body the rest it needs. Because when we give the mind and body the rest it needs, then we have the energy, the space, and the emotional resources to actually be of benefit to others. So at the beginning of your experiment, you might set the intention, may this time restore me to some basic level of sanity, and may that sanity <laughs> extend to everyone I meet, and may I genuinely help people, starting tomorrow. <laughs> and then you might remind yourself throughout the afternoon, may this lying on the floor really help others. See what happens. You might be surprised how hard it is, but you might also be surprised how much more you have to offer on Monday morning. And so this is why hammock practice is very important. I really, truly carry my hammock with me wherever I go. <laughs> I have one of those little packable ones. Um, yeah. I have a lot of good hammock stories, but we can save those for another time. Hmm. And then play. We were just in Iceland, and there's a public pool in every village. Like, the tiniest town has a big public pool with hot tubs and a water slide, usually. And people just go there, and they play, like all different ages. You watch families going down the water slide and water wings, you know, the kids are playing and the grandmas are talking to each other and they're going from the different pools, different temperatures. They're just hanging out and they're really enjoying it. It's like, wow, this whole pool culture is great. I think actually the Icelandic government at some point decided they were going to have public, lots of public pools because it's like the democratic movement in, the, in society. Like all different people from all different walks of life go to the public pool. It's affordable. Then you talk to people while you're sitting around. 
you're hanging out, get to know each other. Same thing in Copenhagen. We went to this park on a beautiful spring day and it was like people were playing drinking games and medieval costumes, playing all this kind of stuff and like the birds and they're just like, it's so much play, rowing a boat. Feels like we really, you know, we got to learn how to play again. Sometimes an exercise we like to do um, in our trainings is just to imagine, you might just do it as I'm talking, Imagine what qualities are present for you when you're your most relaxed. What qualities are present for you when you're your most relaxed? You can just popcorn out. Anything coming up? Carefree. Available. Available. Curiosity. Curiosity. Snoring. Snoring. <laughs> yes, true. <laughs> Goofy. Ease. Ease. Wonder. Wonder. Present. Present. Laughter. Laughter. Content. Content. Yeah. Relaxing is good. It's a way to freedom. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We're coming to the end. You guys are good. You're sticking with me. One of my favorite Tibetan teachers is named Kempo Sultram Gyatso Rinpoche. And he traveled all around the world teaching everywhere. And everywhere he went, the first thing he did was go to the amusement park. <laughs> <laughs> and he loved it. The fear and the shock and the excitement was like pure awareness right there. He's so good at that. Yeah. He also sang a lot of songs of awakening. That's all he would do. He would come and we would like sing for two hours. And they're like really kind of dorky songs. I was your age and I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm singing these songs. They're so silly. But now I love them and I sing them all the time. Singing. He would dance too. Play. It's a good thing. Yeah. All right. So be in your body. Trust yourself. Hmm. Practice generosity and sila. Be aware of your speech. Be careful. Be intentional. Kind, timely, and honest in your speech. And then practice doing nothing. Rest as a sacred act. Get one of those hammocks. <laughs> They're so great. Okay. I'm going to end with this quote. This is by Tulku Orgyen Rinpoche, who's another great Tibetan master. Foremost, I would like to tell you that an enlightened essence is present in everyone. It is present in every state, both samsara and nirvana, and in all sentient beings. There's no exception. Experience your Buddha nature. Make it your constant practice, and you will reach enlightenment. In my lifetime, I have known many, many people who attained such an enlightened state. Awakening to enlightenment is not an ancient fable. It is not mythology. It actually does happen. Bring the oral instructions into your own practical experience, and enlightenment is indeed possible. It is not just a fairy tale.
So it's possible. And let's just sit for a moment or two. So I have one quick announcement. And in the spirit of really bringing mindfulness to all activities, we are going to get our phones back soon. Are you excited? No. Yeah, I know. Maybe bad news. <laughs> so the way we're going to do it is that if you really need to check something or make a phone call for travel, all this very important, before the sit, um, that starts tomorrow at 9, then you can go into the office starting early at 7 in the morning tomorrow and you can pick up your phone. But we would encourage you to wait if you can. And we're going to have a cell phone meditation practice tomorrow morning as part of the morning um, experience. So if you do need to pick up your phone and do work or business or whatever, um, bring it here to the hall for the 9 a.m. sit. And otherwise, you don't need to pick it up. We'll have any of the extra phones here during that, that period. Okay? And we do encourage you to wait because the meditation is really going to be fun. And it's going to be a reunion with your phone. It'll be a ritual and all of this. So, yeah. Yeah. If you can wait, please wait. Okay? Your phones have been on retreat, too. <laughs> Give them the whole time. Yeah. Patience. Okay. Oh, yes, a question. Mm -hmm. um, does the phone have to be connected for the med phone meditation? No, it doesn't have to be connected. And actually, maybe you didn't bring your phone, don't have a phone, that's fine. Totally fine. We're going to do something that you can just imagine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So time for walking. And we'll come back at 8.30 for the Meta Choir. It's like summer camp. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.